Hi, welcome to Masala History Podcast. Uh, my name is Deepti. Hi, I'm Anami. And we are going to talk about one of the great old buildings of colonial India. Co- colonial India, one of the British remnants, the architectural remnants that still dots uh, in the city of Calcutta. Most of most Indians, most people would know it as the Raj Bhavan. And we are going to and we're going to talk about the history of that, you know, very classical uh, architectural building. building. Of um, it was always called the government house yes. before it became Raj Bhavan, I guess. So throughout this podcast, we are going to call it government house and not Raj Bhavan because that is how the British like to refer to it. Yes. Um, but before we go there, I wanted to quickly give a shout out to our uh, podcast. It's uh, Masala History. You can find us on iTunes and we are also available on our website at www.masalahistory.com. I want to, to request you to go to our website. We have show notes and for the readings and other references. For this particular podcast, we are also going to try and collect a lot of images of of government house or Raj Bhavan as it was in its um, golden years, if you will. Right. Because, I mean, as we talk about the architecture, it would be nice to see what it actually looks like. Yes. Yeah. And so while it more or less looks like this grand old dame that hasn't changed a day, um, it has gone through many changes as we will be talking about in our podcast. So go check out www.masalahistory.com for uh, images associated with this podcast. Um, I also wanted to uh, take this opportunity to let you all know that um, we got a lot of comments and feedback from you. Thank you, guys. Yes, thank you so much for that. Jahangir, our last pod, was uh, really um, appreciated and we really love your feedback so please keep commenting and sharing if you like our podcast subscribe to it and share it and let people know and get the word out you guys so thank you so much and please also feel free if you want us to talk about a certain historical event right uh, uh, you know a building architecture anything in history related to south asia Related to South Asia, yeah. If you want us to talk about it, do some research for you, do the legwork and do all the boring stuff, we'll do it for you. We love the boring stuff. We love the boring stuff, yes. Yes. So so that's our little spiel. So now we go back to... Talking about the government house and talking about the historical significance of it and then then study the actual existence of the building from all different angles, whether it's political, colonial, economic, architectural... Of course. Right? And why they're all connected. Why it's all connected. So hopefully you guys have fun listening to this. So to give a quick background to the government house, uh, the the entire construction is completed in 1803, and it remains the official residence first of the Governor General of India, and Mm -hmm. then after 1858, the Viceroy of India till 1911, because till 1911, Calcutta was the capital of British Empire in India. It's only in 1911 that the capital shifts to Delhi. And we have a podcast on how... The capital moved to New Delhi as well. Exactly. And so do go and check our uh, website if you want to hear about the move from Calcutta right. to New Delhi. Right. So first listen to this podcast and then go right. to <laughs> then go to our website and listen we to do the things in reverse order. We do. Here, we yeah. do. We do it as in yeah. as in how we like to yeah. do it. 
So after 1911, when the Viceroy's official residence is shifted to Delhi, uh, the government house still continues to remain an official building of the British Empire. Right. It's occupied by the Lieutenant Governor of Bengal. And after 1947, it is now known as the Raj Bhavan, where the Governor of Bengal now resides. Note, and totally unrelated, <laughs> you said Lieutenant. Lieutenant. Yeah. We in America say lieutenant. Lieutenant. Yeah, lieutenant. Yeah. I'm going to stick to lieutenant. Yeah. Uh, let us know, do you prefer lieutenant or you prefer lieutenant? Probably. Lieutenant. Yeah. Anyway. So, so, yeah, so the ceremonial stone of the government house was laid in 1790. And you have to give them credit. They completed that enormous structure, the construction of the enormous structure yeah. by 1803. Yeah, I just read somewhere that it cost... In modern currency, some three point eight million dollar uh, pounds. To wow! You know, you know, I saw the figure somewhere, yeah. and since between the between Deepthi and me, she's better at math. I said I don't know how this would convert to modern day valuation. So I'm glad you gave them that information. Yeah, no, I I, I don't know if that's a real figure. You guys, you need you can find it out <laughs> on in, on the internet because I went there and did a <laughs> very very rudimentary search for that information. <laughs> right. Um, but like. The the building is ceremonial and grand, right? Right, right. And so I think there is this long quote that, you know, the first the first idea of the government house comes from Warren Hastings, the first governor general uh, of India and Bengal. And this is and this is a quote that he talks about why the government house is necessary in Calcutta. Mm -hmm. And so the quote goes, and I quote, that high office has always been expected to maintain a considerable degree of state to follow a strict ceremonial observance and to entertain on a lavish scale. Such practice was not only in exact harmony with Indian tradition, mm -hmm. which associated sovereignty with splendor, but it was also demanded by the British population of Bengal who expected the head of the government and the representative of the monarch to deal with the native rajas and nobles and also with themselves on a footing, not merely of equality, but of vantage and to hold a court in Calcutta that should more than reproduce the etiquette and dignity of the court at home. Phew. So there's a lot of there's a lot of aims and there's a lot of plans that Hastings mm -hmm. has about the significance of the government house, right? Because again, right. politically, as we know, this is the time of the Orientalists, William Jones, mm -hmm. Hastings, who are all talking about collaboration. Right. Right? cultural collaboration, you know, trying to find common links, common traces. So you see even the nature of the reason why he wants the government house to come up is, again, to, to, to you know, kind of recognize, acknowledge how Indian tradition works and how the British monarchy right. works. I think, I think it's also interesting that uh, in that quote, he mm -hmm. sort of mentions that it is about representing the empire representing england mm -hmm. but it's also he makes a crucial point about diplomacy right right he's talking about i mean this is obviously like early on mm -hmm. uh, in the 19th century mm -hmm. uh, i don't think uh, the british are still thinking of india as their 
own, right? Exactly. Like, you know, it's still they're dealing with the Indian rajas and the nobles. So right. um, diplomacy is key in, in the way Hastings sort of talks about it, mm-hmm. and which I found really interesting. Right. And he wants to do it on equal footing, like you're yeah. saying, diplomatic relations. Yeah, right? and he says just like the splendor that the Indian rajas are accustomed to, right. therefore, we right. also need to have a splendid structure for ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's quite interesting that there is there is a status quo right right um that's There's, being displayed right and also i mean you know it it is it is supposed to be a place that represents um you know britain in its most finest most mm-hmm. lavish scale yeah. Right. So there is obviously, like you're saying, there's that image to represent Britain in India Mm -hmm. and they're using and this is something, you know, and since, uh, you know, architecture, you can't talk about British India and not talk about their architectural legacy. Right. Every building that they have put up in any part of the country is representing something. It's not right. Yeah. And I would uh, strongly recommend everyone to go and read Thomas Metcalf's um, Splendors of. Yeah, splendors of the the um, uh, or the architecture and empire, like you know the the all the books written by Thomas Metcalf on British architecture in India, are, like great and right. really really um, uh, useful to understanding mm-hmm. um, why architecture is connected to notions of power and how architecture performs mm-hmm. the idea of power, which is so important in the case of government house mm-hmm. to think about architecture as. Uh, undeniably linked right. to the practice of power. Right. Um, not just because, you know, it was a place where the highest office of the land was held, mm-hmm. where that man or the person lived, mm-hmm. but also in the way it represented the empire, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, so that in that sense, um, we really want to think about architecture as a way of representing power. Right. As and a even tool. Today. Right. Yeah. As a tool. Yeah. And it's again architecture, especially the government house, it's also it it also adds legitimacy, right? Right. To the British rule, to the continuation of British rule in India. And the fact that this uh this you know, this architectural wonder, if you mm-hmm. might call it that, you know, it it was the official residence of uh, the lieutenant, you know, the uh, governor general and then the viceroy for more than 100 years. Right. So there is something to talk about how, how much the British invested in right. the government house. And it's also, again, like we were talking about, every, every architecture uh, has, you know, controversy surrounding it and... Uh, very closely linked with the political and colonial climate of the time. Mm-hmm. And it's here, again, one should mention that there was a slight bit of controversy that comes about when, you know, when Hastings and then, uh, you know, Richard Wellesley decide that they want to put up the government house. And East India Company, as some of you may know, East India, British East India Company was a privately held... Uh, right company that worked out of uh, Britain. It had a court of directors. And so whoever the governor general was always needed approval, always needed mm-hmm. permission for, for anything that they were carrying out in India. But it's controversial. But the, the controversy that comes up here is that Wellesley pretends, and this is really interesting, mm-hmm. that you see the governor general pretending, saying that, oh, I sent the letter to right, the board of directors right, yeah. asking for approval. Mm-hmm. And then uh, have we talked about the author of the book yet? 
Um, no, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll right get to that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so he talks about, so he says, oh, I sent the letter to the board of directors. And so the author says, no, that copy of that letter has not ever been found. Mm-hmm. So there's a, so, and the board of directors at this point has no, no other option but to go ahead and, because the construction had already started. And by the time Wellesley actually lets the board of directors know or the board finds out, it's already about a year too late. So, right. so you see how the, power the so the monopolistic power of the british east india company when it comes to making every decision unilaterally about india starts to be questioned even in something like the construction of the government house right yeah maybe we should take a moment here to um sort of discuss um the books and the materials that we are referencing to in this podcast um this one that we uh, mostly relied on for the information so far has been the British government uh, government in India, um, a book that was written by Lord Curzon in 1905. In no, a, in later. I think it was published in 1925. Right. Yes, after his stint. And the and in a bit we will also tell you why Curzon was so invested in right. writing about <laughs> the government house. Right. And he's written two volumes on it. Right. And um, there were also a couple of other... Um, there is a book called Calcutta, Old and New. Right. Um, I, I, I think the author's name is H.E.A. Cotton. I should... Uh, we'll have that information for you on the website. Right. And there is, you know, and since they're so original with their names, <laughs> so this book is British Government in India. The third book is also Britain in India. So they're very creative and original with their names. Well, at least they're descriptive, and so we don't have to worry about figuring out what it is right, that right. goes into the book. Right. It's very self-explanatory. Yeah, I just um, had... I purchased this really n- exciting book for me, mm-hmm. um, written by one of my favorite scholars, and the book is on circulation histories. Okay. Um, and it's called There and Back. Oh. And I thought he was talking about the Hobbit's tale oh. when I first read that. Okay, yeah. that reference is wasted on me. Yes, I know, but, but like, hopefully you know, there for and some back, of a Hobbit's tale is like a reference to the Tolkien's oh. Hobbit. Okay. Um, in any case, like you know, I I I like books that describe what it is right, right. in the title. Oh, okay. Uh, so moving on from <laughs> Hobbits back to Government House right. in the 19th century, right. and I think one anybody if you pull up any image of the Government House even today, even images from back in the day, the one thing, the one characteristic feature that stands out about the Government House is the garden, right, surrounding it, right. The the garden is of interest for multiple reasons. For one. Um, it has a maidan. You're from Calcutta. You can tell me this. Right. Like, you know, yes. It has a, like a long expanse of... Can you describe what it looks like right now? Um, well, it kind of, you know, it stands in in the heart of what used to be where the, the nerve center of British rule in Calcutta, uh-huh. in the area that's called Dalhousie. Uh-huh. So it's something... Uh, the government house, no matter which direction you're coming from, uh-huh. the first thing that you see is it's way in the interiors. Although it's on one of the busiest streets in Calcutta, yeah. it's not something that you can easily access. You can see it from a distance. Yeah. So that, once again, talks about the demarcation, right? right. Uh, and, you know... The garden, I believe, would have served that purpose. Right. But it is one of those constructions that you still look at and you say, wow. Right. You know, maybe we should also describe what the building looks like. You know, for those of you who have never seen um, 
the uh, government house in Calcutta or seen pictures of it, it is what you would expect for a traditional British mansion to look like. Um, it was as built in the early um, 18th, um, 19th century right. and basically followed uh, what was then a Palladian architectural model that okay. was very popular as country manners. Okay. And so you, would, you can see the Greco-Roman sort of portico, like the pillars with the pediment, the big triangular pediment on top. Right, uh, the four pillars. Yes, right. The the pillars, and then it has like you know a dome that sort of sits on top in this building a little disproportionately. So, but then it's also marked by symmetry, like you know. So all of those buildings um, built in that neoclassical style right. was always pillared, always had symmetry, mm-hmm. um, had um, large sort of doors and windows mm-hmm. um, um, all around it, um, and ornamental parapets, porticos, and the like. Right. And also, you know, for somebody who has walked past that, walked past that place, mm-hmm. you know, the one thing that strikes you is that it always looks elevated. Right, yeah. Right? So uh, they, they put that in. Oh, okay. Uh, they made... The, the whole idea was to make sure that the building looked like it stood on a pedestal. So you have to look up. Yes. Basically, like... It's not. I don't know if it's aspiration, but you look up to the British monarchy, the representation right. of British monarchy. And another thing to worth mentioning about the government house are the ten feet tall wrought iron gates. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that wrought iron gate is actually keeping the garden in. Right. Yes. Right. The 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 gardens. Um, it started off being this treeless expanse space. So some of mm-hmm. the early photographs, if you look at them, mm-hmm. or the watercolors, you'll see that it's just like a maidan, like you know, it's like an expanse of land. Right. And it was only later that you know it actually started um, having some sort of garden and trees and ponds and things. So, okay. It, uh, so the the construction of the garden itself is um, almost. Um, representative of how the government house itself functioned. With Mm -hmm. each governor general that came in, and particularly the wife of the governor general, Mm -hmm. they would decide on what to do with the garden space. So Um. um, it was only by the time of Lord Mayo, for example, that, you know, they had a dedicated sort of idea of what the landscape should be designed as. Okay. Um, But before that, they were uh, not as invested in that um, idea. Okay. Um, Or maybe they, they just didn't have the money for it right. after having spent so much <laughs> on the on the on the building itself <laughs> right. but for the longest uh, uh, time this this vast 26 acres of land mm-hmm. sat in the center of calcutta mm-hmm. with a, and the building sort of like this crowning jewel as you said mm-hmm. rising up from amidst an expanse of like mm-hmm. land mm-hmm. for everyone to see right and even i mean you know so again a li- little bit of reference for you know some of our listeners who are not not very familiar with Calcutta's landscape, architectural landscape, is, mm-hmm. you know, the British nerve center was this area in Dalhousie. Right. And so all the offices, all the government organizations all come up in Dalhousie. Right. And the, gov- and the government house kind of sits in the middle. Yeah. Right? So, again, to give a little bit of history, so it was, it was the 
Captain Wyatt, right. uh, who was a civil architect, who was yeah, who was called upon to you know prepare the plan mm -hmm. for designing the building. Mm -hmm. And this is where we will tell you why Curzon has written two volumes, <laughs> two huge volumes yeah. on the history of Government House yeah. in Calcutta. Um, right. So I didn't know this about Lord Curzon and mainly because I hadn't made the connection until I started reading. Um, because Curzon's uh, ancestral home uh, was the Kettleston Hall, or the Kettleston Manor, mm -hmm. which was one of the finest homes in all of England. Really? Yes. It, wow. is, it was considered, um, it was in Derbyshire. Mm -hmm. um, think Derbyshire, think... Um, Jane Austen's novels. Right. Think Darcy. Mm, okay. Darcy was from Derbyshire. Um, and so the the they're known for the manor houses. And okay. Kedleston Hall was which was built, I think, in 1759, was mm. one of the uh, earliest, most beautiful manor houses. It was done in the Palladian style. Mm -hmm. It stood up as an icon of what English country houses should look like. Mm -hmm. It was part of that sort of movement where you wanted to look like, you know, the you would manicure and landscape your garden to look like nature, right? Oh, wow. So, um, so that was a trend that was going on in Britain. Yeah. And they tried to replicate the same thing in Calcutta? So, so yeah, no, Kettleston Hall became uh, an inspiration for all sorts of manners, both in England mm -hmm. and around the world. Mm -hmm. And Kettleston Hall uh, became the inspiration for Government, Government House. Right. And it was almost tried, almost literally copied. The floor plans were almost literally copied. Wow. Um, and so the grand sort of entrance stairways mm -hmm. were almost literally copied, oh. as was the entrance um, so it, it's a weird setup where there are these two grand staircases that lead you up to the second floor, not okay. the ground floor, okay. you know, the one above right. of the building. Mm -hmm. And then once you get there, you get into the state rooms, right? Mm. But there was also a way from the northern side that you could walk into the building uh, on the ground floor, okay. not through the stairs, but ground floor. Okay. And um, I can't remember her first name, but... Eden, Miss Eden. Emily Eden. Emily Eden. Right. She writes a lot about this in the 1830s, I believe. And mm. she says it looks like a scary place. <laughs> Dungeon? Go, yeah, because it's <laughs> okay. got like, you know, printing presses on the hall in the corridors. And oh. like, you know, and but like people dressed in their ball gowns would walk through this place. But so um, that basement floor was like a weird thing. Okay. Uh, but it was supposed to mirror the elegance of the Kettleston Manor, but not quite getting Not quite it. getting yeah. there. Right. So the so the grand staircases would be used by the Governor General mm -hmm. to receive dignitaries and yes. stuff? Okay. And Curzon kind of mentions it's got so much importance because it is the first thing that the Governor General ascends and the last thing that he descends. Oh, oh ceremonially. wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. They were big on ceremonies. Of course. Right. All of us are. Right. Mm -hmm. They're big on ceremonies and, you know, doing the right thing and looking as grand as you possibly can right. yeah. while doing it. Yeah. So, so you know, that's a little bit about the architecture and we'll get, come back to it again. Yeah. I just wanted to um, sort of paint a picture of what um, <laughs> this place looked like, not, not just the gardens, the experience of... Um, government house for the people who lived there or worked there this should um, be interesting. in the mid-19th century. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, Lord Curzon actually 
uh, talks about this in his book and he says that the gardens first were, were when thrown open to the Calcutta society was usually for the state garden party mm-hmm. and uh, basically this was um, not a very interesting he calls it a depressing function oh, no. <laughs> so so uh, basically it wasn't a great function or anything it was just boring but um, I really loved the description that he had about what uh, happens mm-hmm. after the events take place. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to quote this. Bear with me, it's a slightly longer quote. Um, it says, he says, later on, this entertainment was sometimes given in the evening, as in the garden party. Okay. At that hour, great flying foxes or bats <laughs> used to lurch from tree to tree. <laughs> they have since been scared away, he okay. says. Oh. Towards midnight, jackals em- emerged from the drains and howled in the shrubberies. What? And stinking civet cats would clamber up the pillars or pipes to the roof of the government house. <laughs> There they like to linger, sometimes descending at night and even entering the bedrooms on the southern side in surreptitious search of food or drink. Oh, good God. We shot several of these horrid creatures creeping along the frieze under the parapet in the moonlight, Uh and their successors have since been trapped and extirpated. Oh, no. In the daytime, the garden used to contribute to the beauty, though not to the peacefulness of the scene, with clouds of green parakeets which would fly shrieking past the windows and settle upon the cornice of the house. Wow. The dense belt of bamboos, palms, and other tropical verdure that had grown up all round the garden served another purpose besides that of a screen, mm-hmm. for it sufficed to shelter a regular colony of native Malis or gardeners, of whom there were between 30 and 40, living in mat huts in the compound, completely hidden from view. Wow. End quote. I love this description uh-huh. because, you know, to imagine the civet cat sort of clambering up the <laughs> tree, <laughs> up the house to the corners. And, you know, it, it builds this, it, it sounds very Indian. Right, right, right. right. It, is, it is very, it has, I mean, here is this colonial edifice, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, built with Roman architecture, mm-hmm. with domes and tympanums mm-hmm. and what have you. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in the manner of Kettleston Hall, no less. Right. And you have parakeets shrieking by its window right. and civic cats climbing on top of it. it, it there is, it, it's such so symbolic of what the empire is in India. Right. I mean, you can try to make a little Britain. Mm-hmm. It is never happening. No, it's never right? happening. I mean, by this quote, would it be a fair assumption to make, uh, make that Curzon was probably not very impressed living here surrounded by all this... Uh, wildlife. <laughs> he certainly had a humor about it, for right, sure. Right, right. Um, but uh, I guess that is not how his experience of Kettlestone Hall was. Probably not. His, his uh, childhood home, probably. Right. Because his uncle lived in it and grandfather. Guess, yeah, and grandfather. Right, right. And so um, it is very possible that he's comparing the two and saying, oh, this is not how this place is supposed to be experienced, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it, it's very interesting to see how. Neo-colonial architecture or colonial architecture in the neoclassical style in India kind of sits like a sore thumb, mm. almost experientially. Right. Sometimes. Right. Um, and it calls on, it's it's so ironical. Right, right. Uh, when you think of how it's being used and how it's being experienced mm-hmm. um, in India. Right. At the time. Right. Um, so, you know, now I wanted to, like, let's talk a little bit about what was happening inside the government house while all of these right. birds and animals were running <laughs> right. around, you know, helter-skelter around the government house. Let's, You know, because the government house, again, 
again, as we have discussed about this, had political, social dimensions to it, colonial, you know, huge uh, colonial and economic dimensions to right. it. And it's, and it's beautiful how it's all tied up with the architecture. Right, yeah. So, you know, now it would be easy for us to imagine, okay, they completed the construction in 1802 and it just remained that way till 1911, right? Didn't undergo any changes. But as we know, Mm -hmm. colonial rule in itself underwent such immense transformations, right? right? And that, you would say, is reflected in the design of the... Right, yeah. So uh, the government house, like anything else that the British built probably is like a piecemeal affair Mm. of course the interiors changed with each governor general Mm -hmm. um it had to change to reflect their taste much like it would happen at the um at at, at new delhi Mm -hmm. where um every prime minister would bring in a new kind of um uh, his own his own sort of uh touch right if you want his own little legacy Yes. Being left behind. Yes, right, into right. into the into the interiors. But in the exteriors, it never... For example, there was the dome. Mm. The dome was not initially a part of the architectural design. Okay. And then when it was added, it was like the squat thing that didn't really sit like a dome okay. um, <laughs> on top of uh, the building. Right. Uh, so much so... And then you can't see the dome from the inside. So it's not like a dome dome. It's just like a <laughs> topi, like a cap, <laughs> cap that's placed on top of the terrace of the building. Okay. And so uh, the first one was a wooden one, mm-hmm. and it was made fun of quite a lot. Um, and it was also written about in like you know very um, oh, no. sort of yeah like right. you know, embarrassing terms. Nobody right. liked it. Right. It was um, replaced in 1824 mm. by uh, Lord Cornwallis. Okay. And then um, he actually placed. <laughs> Uh, he wanted, no, sorry, it was not replaced by Lord Cornwallis. Lord Cornwallis's statue was supposed to go on top of the new dome in 1824. Oh, wow. And instead of that, they put a lady with a spear and a sword up there, okay. uh, like a female figure, must be for Britannia or Minerva or someone. And That's speculation that, on our part. Yes. Right? Yep. Um, and on their part. Curzon also did not know. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> and then that got struck down by lightning almost immediately. And so that got taken down. Okay. And then later in 1852, Lord Delhousie came in and put a real sort of uh, dome made out of iron with a pedestal so that, mm. you know, it actually sits up and you can actually see it. Okay. So, uh, the like... The architecture, similarly, like Lord Curzon comes in and makes in a makes a lot of changes mm-hmm. to uh, the structure. Um, there's another governor general included tennis courts in wow. the area between the wings. Okay, uh, that were, that used to project out on the east and the west sides. Okay, and so there was a lot of changes that came reno- and renovations that came with each governor general, governor general. and viceroy. And Viceroy. Right. And so, uh, in fact, uh, Curzon starts in that, uh, <laughs> at the beginning of his chapter on um, exteriors, I think, mm-hmm. he starts by saying, it's like a nomad camp, the wow. government house, because mm-hmm. each person comes and lives for four or five years and then leaves. Right. And neither is the, uh, the person who's living is not interested in the history of the building because they are temporary there. Right. And when they leave, they're not keeping any records because, you know, they're gone. Right. Right. So, um, so it is re- truly like a nomad camp, a very dignified nomad camp. Right. And this nomad camp, again, it's a very well, it's a very 
app description of the government house because it only saw, but this is again interesting, this was the official residence, but because the governor general or the viceroy had to travel so much because, I mean, hello, he was the, he was ruling all right. over India. Yeah. I mean, not India, South Asia, let's just call it South, South Asia. South Asia, yeah. Yes. I mean, it was British India. So. British India, let's call it British India. So, you know, it saw most of its activities only between December and March. Right, yeah, and, I forgot and, about that. Yeah. Right, yeah. And, so from, and so from December to March, so from April to November, it was like a nomadic home because you didn't know if somebody was living there or yeah. not, right? I'm guessing there was still state activities happening, just the governor general was not in residence. Right, so, yeah. but most of, the, most of the, as we would in today's day call parties, yes. well, those would be held between December and March right. unless there were Exceptions made. So again, you know, for anybody who knows about, you know, uh, governor generals, one of the names that comes up is Lord Wellesley. And what we found out in our reading is that Wellesley knew how to party. Oh, <laughs> he he was a party animal. You know, he found any That's excuse the why he was recalled. True. And so he pretty much found any reason that he could. And one of, and you know, if you, if you read about, uh, you know, contemporary accounts of the time, some of them say Wellesley probably put government house together in such a rush manner because he just wanted to have parties and lavish entertainment. You know, we are having a pattern here. Right. Last week we looked at Jahangir, who right. was obviously the party guy of the Mughal world. Mm-hmm. This episode is about party about Government House, right. which apparently Wellesley is putting up as a party house. Yes. Well, that's not our opinion. That's yeah, That's yeah. been... <laughs> because he just wanted a lavish uh, place where he could have parties. But again, uh-huh. these parties, you know, it, it would be easy to see them in isolation, but it should be seen, again, in the larger context of... Right. British colonial enterprise. Right. So, you know, so 1802, the house opens up. First thing Wellesley does mm-hmm. on the 30th of April, 1802, he celebrates the birthday of the King of England at that point, King George III. And he also takes that occasion to, he uses that to celebrate one epic mm-hmm. event uh-huh. in British colonial history in right. India, which right. would be the Fall of Seringapatnam, Tipu is dead, yay! <laughs> let's let's let's, let's have a lavish for dinner. Three whole years, like you know, <laughs> they started celebrating in 1799, and they kept celebrating all the way into the 1830s. Right, right. I mean, you know, they, they were celebrating the anniversary of it, and uh, you know, again, Tipu is is uh, is one of those fascinating characters in Indian history. Yes, and we do have a pod on him as oh well. Oh my God. I'm sorry. Like, you know, this seems to connect to so many of our older pods that That's I have awesome. to keep saying. Uh, this is an older pod right. um, of uh, about Tipu Sultan. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a great one because Tipu, again, is one of those colorful characters. Very. Uh, very ambivalent too. Like, you know, there are, I mean, he is derided. And I know in today's uh, climate, in political climate in India, he's a very controversial figure in many ways. But... Do listen to a podcast because, you know, you're bound to um, like him than dislike him if you listen to it. Right. And Tipu was one of those, you know, just a short context, and Tipu was one of those Indian emperors that was a 
huge thorn in the British side. Right, which is why they're still celebrating four years after his death. Yes, yeah. they're celebrating the fall of Seringapatnam because it's not just about defeating Tipu, it's also about getting the French out. Yes. You know, and, yes. and the Brits and the French weren't really great friends at that point. Right. Right. So, you know, 30th April 1802, you know, there's a huge lavish celebration. And again, 9th August 1802, he again... Just well, a few months later. Just right? a few months later, yeah. you know, Wesley needs a break too. And then... <laughs> You know, they celebrate the success of British expedition in Egypt, where, you know, it was held, with, it was celebrated with a magnificent ball, supper and illumination in the honor of peace. And the hero of this expedition in Egypt, General Baird, was also celebrated in right. this. And I think it's important here to kind of have a description of how these celebrations, of how these celebrations, you know, were carried out. Um, so, you know, this will, it's again a reminder of Wellesley, yes, he was a party animal, obviously, but him celebrating using the government house as the space, mm -hmm. as the legitimate government space to celebrate Britain's achievements right. all over. Yeah. Right? To be as lavish and showy about yeah. it as in, possible. In one way, in some ways, that kind of uh, predates the actual. Um, time the period when india really is the crown mm. uh, the 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 crowning glory um, right. or the jewel in the british crown is right, what i was trying right. to say um and this kind of shows like you know celebrating all the british achievements across the world because um they also start bringing back uh war trophies to put in the compound right uh, so so but you know it's uh, uh so you know let's just like see this description and again bear with me because this is a longish quote mm -hmm. but this is again such a descriptive way of and you can almost imagine Wellesley in the government right. house with the invited guests right so the invited company of 800 Europeans assembled at government house at 9 p.m mm -hmm. they started partying late uh, the governor general on entering at 10 p.m held a darbar for the vakils and native gentlemen in the north veranda uh, thence he marched in procession to the upstairs ballroom where he took his seat on a crimson and gilt chair of mm -hmm. the state under a crimson canopy at the southern end with the chief dignitaries on either side. The dancing in which 40 couples led off then commenced and continued till midnight. Wow. I don't think I could do this. When the company descended to a magnificent sit-down supper in the marble hall. At 1 a.m., the fireworks began on the south front of the government house with huge set pieces and transparencies and portraits of the heroes of the hour. This display, more importantly, was witnessed by wow. the governor general, the chief justice, the members of council, and the judges from the south portico. Meanwhile, the whole city around Government House and as far as the fort, Fort William, including the latter, had been illuminated through the evening. Is there a better way? Is there a more effective way wow. to celebrate Britain and its achievements? That's, that's way over the top. Right. Well, we, you know, I, it's I well of, asleep. I, I kind of uh, lost at the transparencies. Like, <laughs> I kind of got lost there. Like, really? Right. Transparencies? <laughs> like, you know, that's the thing. <laughs> I mean, I would want to be there. I would want to. It's, it's, it's like it's. If you're from, if, you know, South Asia, you kind of are used to that kind of festivities, like you mm -hmm. know, temple festivals. 
Durgo, Durga Pujo, come on. Pujo, yes. yes. You know, the, I mean, like, you're used to that sort of grandiosity. Right. Of, fe- of, fest- of, of festiveness, of celebration. Mm-hmm. But to see this sort of stiff collar. Stiff upper, 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 upper lip. Upper, yes. upper lip, you yes. know. Brit- British men. Men sort of celebrating uh, it is kind of. Right. But, again, but then we're talking about British men who are also Orientalists in a particular setting. So, you know, they're not typical if you want or stereotypical of stereotypical yes but it's again the entire idea of wellesley trying to replicate how the british monarch would have celebrated right and so to see himself and see british empire and himself as the ruler of it as an extension of it Mm -hmm. what's really interesting in these in these tidbits of how the celebrations happen is the mention of the marble hall right and the marble hall kind of becomes uh, significant as well. But I mean, do you actually should we uh, should we keep con- talking about Wellesley and later party animals? Or I just sort of question for you. I know we mentioned the controversy earlier on, right? But maybe you should sort of elaborate on what the controversy was and what happened as a result of it. Well, the controversy was basically the British East India Company trying to dig its heels and trying to you know. Uh, excuse my language, but it was almost like a pissing contest between the governor general and the board of directors. So the board of directors saw themselves as the ultimate legitimate economic powerhouse in India. Granted, yes, they were, Mm -hmm. right? But the governor general also had immense amount of power because this is before the age of telegraph or, you know, any kind of fast-paced technology, right? Mm -hmm. So anything being sent from India to Britain would take a minimum. And this is, again, before the opening of the Suez Canal, right? right? So it would take anywhere between 9 to 12 months for a letter to get there. So, yes, Wellesley, on his part, said, okay, I asked you for permission. I can't help it if the letter reaches you 12 months after when I sent it. I already started mm-hmm. the construction and, and the co- board of directors was like, well, we don't approve of it. Yeah, what, what, what happens to Wellesley for those of the listeners who, ha- who don't know the story? About um, what happens when he returns to England? Well, I, I think at that point, the board of directors has kind of lost control. You know, so he's, ah, he's not see. really pulled up. Okay. And, you know, they had more issues to deal with than pulling up Lord Wellesley because he, you know, right, okay. s- sanctioned the creation okay. of the government yeah. house, right? But again, like you were talking about how uh, with every succeeding governor general or viceroy coming in, the construction, every one of them leaves a legacy, right? Right. Um, and so it's interesting because, again, under Wellesley in 1803, once again, you know, he celebrates the big treaty of Amiens, which was a treaty between the French Republic of Napoleon, mm-hmm. who, again, was a huge thorn on the side of Britain. And so Napoleon, Spain, and United Kingdom kind of, uh, you know, uh, come up with a treaty. Right. So it's one once again, celebrating Britain's achievements, lighting up the whole of... I mean, can, I mean, I mean, you know, you know more about architecture than I do. I mean, can you imagine the whole government house being lit up and staying lit up yeah. all night? Because anyone who looks at it is like, we're celebrating Britain's predominant, you know, Britain's, like, dominance over yeah. world. Think Republic Day mm-hmm. uh, in, in, on Janpath, mm-hmm. but without, in, a, in a period without electricity. Wow. Right? Wow. Like, wow. you know, you don't have that access right. to electric power right. the way we do. So think right. of, like, you know, a wedding, a Punjabi wedding in Delhi, right. in South Delhi. <laughs> <laughs> and think of all that's happening there. 
but with no access to electricity or running water. Hmm. I don't know if I would like that. <laughs> but they managed it. Right. Wesley managed it. Right. Yeah. No. So that's what it is. It takes a whole lot of work to actually have that kind of ceremoniality mm-hmm. in that period. To us today, I think it sounds like oh yes, another shadi, right? Right. But to have you needed a whole lot of power mm-hmm. and a whole lot of the the sort of display of that power mm. that is what these festivities are about right. it is to show that you know we are here and i think in in the 19th century it was also about oh we have arrived you right. know we are now right in a position where we can celebrate right. like the moguls right celebrate like the moguls and because britain also needed to establish its position vis-a-vis the other european powers that were right. also in yeah. india at the point to show that they were the most supreme of the powers yeah and it's uh, <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because um, uh, one of the things as i was reading i was noticing was that he, he um, many of these things that went into the interiors of go- the government house like mm-hmm. um, there were these 12 Caesar statues. Wow. And um and they were said, "Oh, we got that when we fought the Dutch off the coast and we got it." Oh. Or, you know, "Oh, we secured that when we took over the French colony in this place." So, there was always this idea of conquest of things that were inside the government house. Mm-hmm. They were almost like conquest booty. right but in many cases they were not right. like the chandeliers uh, which were made of of cut glass that mm-hmm. hung inside the government house mm-hmm. again came from the ship that we uh, you know uh, was going we- to batavia and we captured it along the route right and it happened to be from uh, claude martin's house constantia <laughs> okay. which was in lucknow okay. and which Uh, was basically auctioned off after his death in 1801 and the uh, Br- British resident in Calcutta had bought, bought it okay uh, from uh, in Lucknow and okay. transported it to Calcutta oh and so the chandeliers which were like you know the the marble room that you mentioned right. it was filled with it like oh. you know the ballroom was filled with these chandeliers right. um, the ballroom was on top of the marble room and was filled with the chandeliers mm. and they came actually from another marvelous uh, early colonial building right um the constantia mm-hmm. um it is still there it is a school now mm. and it's i think called la martiniere now right um and if you want to hear more about colonial architecture comment and then we will have a show on you for colonial architecture because there's a lot to talk about yes that. please i mean we we need to mention this again if you want us to cover an interesting topic in yeah. south asian history let us know we promise we love doing this yeah no claude martin is a very interesting character by himself right he fathered i think eight children had a muslim wife and then right. and then he hung out a lot with um, so he was like the, the nawab white, so he was like the, the white mogul Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was right. he was one of the white Mughals. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, that's an that would be interesting to talk about. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, yeah we should do that. Yeah. 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 And um, so yeah, so these kind of things that went into the interiors, the decor itself, it was procured in different ways. But like you know, they they tried to or they seem to have been this myth of them being connected to some conquest. Right. And in the same sense, the the grounds of. Uh, of the government house mm-hmm. was a place to display their conquest booty so would you almost see the government house then as you know having a lot of legitimacy and you know having the power it's a tool would it also serve as like a museum 
You know, like how you have the British Museum right, today, yeah. where they have collected. They claim they were. Uh-huh, they were. They uh-huh. claim they have been. Uh-huh, you know, been uh-huh. given all of these fineries uh-huh. from around uh-huh. the world, which is now d- displayed at the British Museum, right. right? So when you're talking about these twelve Caesar statues that they claim to have collected, right. so I have two. Like there are two questions that are coming to mind. One, are they seeing themselves as worthy successors of the Roman Empire? They always did, I think. Like, the British always thought of themselves as the legitimate heirs to the Roman world, right? Right. Uh, but secondly, would would you see the government house and all of these booties in there, you know, all of these bounties collected in there? As you like, know, this, this question, it's making me... It's, it's a bit timely because, you know, okay. I'm just going to write my chapter five after I finish this chapter. Oh. And it's on decolonization of museum spaces oh. and what museums actually mean in South Asia oh. and what collection means in South so Asia. So are you from... Promising us to have an answer to my question in another three months. Um, yes, no, read my <laughs> dissertation if you want to want an answer, and then probably you might not get it. Um, so going back to the topic at hand, what what really struck me was this. Um, this sort of display of cannons. Right. right. Right? So they had a cannon that was mounted on a dragon um, with, like, red eyes because they captured it from China during the China War. Oh, um, so they're Oriental despots, yeah. too. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, okay. yes. And then um, there was another one from the Tipu's uh, cannon from Seringapatnam. Seringapatnam, mm. according to the British. Um, it's actually Sri Rangapatnam, right? Okay. So I'll call it Seringapatam. Thank you. So uh, from Seringapatam was also there. Mm. There was another cannon that was actually from um, uh, the fight in Burma. Okay. uh, From King Tebow. Um, And then they had a bunch of cannons from the Sikh War, uh, which they fought. uh, Against Ranjit Singh? Yeah, from 1846, Mm. 1845-46, right? Right, right. Um, And... And this was crazy because, you know, the if you just look at the cannons in the compound, mm. it went from 1799 mm-hmm. to uh, 1757 mm. to 1886. Wow. They're yeah. celebrating more than 100 yeah. years and of Britain. Yeah, and so just Britain's... looking at the, the cannons, right. you can get a history of the conquest of the British in South Asia. Right. Like, you know, which part did they con- conquer first? Oh. You know, and you can just look at the cannons and look at the dates on the cannons and, and it will tell you the history of British rule in India. Yeah. Wow. Which I found fascinating. It is. And it's also the use of cannons is a very hyper-masculine imagery. Right. Right? Yeah. You know. And so... You did not see my action right now, but I did. I, I, yes. but unfortunately, I had to witness it. <laughs> okay. um, but, you know, it's, it's a very, you know, hyper-masculine British uh, conquest of India. There was, it was all out. It, it, it is very Freudian. <laughs> it is very Freudian. <laughs> the, the, the canon, you know, the symbol right. of uh, right. hyper-masculine uh, You know, you British should, Deepti's going crazy with the hand gestures right yeah. now. No, 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 I will stop. <laughs> but like. But if you guys, but if you guys still miss the context, please, you know. Send us a message and we'll tell you exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, I can put up a video of hand No, please. Okay. okay, okay. No, no. Okay. <laughs> no. Uh, so in any case, like, you know, the, the, that is what the government house is. Right. It is sort of a, a, 
not just symbolic, but almost performing the empire in some ways. Yes, performing right? Britishness. Yeah. Performing empire. Performing the best that Britain has to offer. But, you know, this is, again, interesting. So, you know, if we take a step back, is to, you know, talk about how you were saying government house went through so many changes. And, again, it's important to remember that not every governor general who was coming in was interested oh, in, right, yeah. in displaying the splendor of Britain. You know, so right. you had Wellesley on one hand, and you had Auckland. And yeah, unfortunately, guys, we won't have time to talk about each and every governor general, but we'll mention the key ones. You know, the ones who were who said, okay, let's celebrate Britain. Let's mm -hmm. use Government House as a platform to celebrate Britain, right? right? But you also had governors like Lord Minto, you know, who was the governor general from 1807 to 1813. Lord Minto was a complete joy kill. Oh, okay, Deepthi clearly doesn't like him yeah. too much. And, you know, I mean, I think somebody echoed the same sentiment that Deepthi feels about Minto, because a contemporary account of the time, because Minto refused to use the government house to have any kind of, uh, you know, dinners or soirees or ball, uh, you know, ball party. He didn't, he... Balls. Balls. He didn't, he didn't want to have any of those. To the balls to have. That I hope I oh god you guys had to hear it I'm sorry but you know again Minto was more interested in you know in to live the life of a private gentleman of fortune rather than as a viceroy over a hundred million fellow creatures so it's very different from the way Wellesley and Hastings function and Auckland right. function and even Bentick to a certain point so similarly and this is a really interesting quote and I love how these guys write to each other right. not knowing that these you know messages are going to be read 200 years later. By people like us. By people like us, yeah. nerds, history nerds. So Dalhousie, again, was one of those, uh, you know, governor generals, 1848 to 1856. A lot of people say a lot of his policies led to the mutiny. But, you know, we will save that for another pod. Yeah, um, yeah we should. We should. Um, but again, Dalhousie was obviously more interested in acquiring more of India under the British crown and was not as interested in, you know, using government house to celebrate Britain socially and, uh, you know, by holding, you know, dinners and celebrating victories. And so I, th this was one of those events where Dalhousie was forced to give a ball. I can't remember. It had to be the king's birthday or something like that. And he's forced to give a ball and have mm -hmm. a dinner party. And he's so tired of it that he writes to his friend and he says... And I quote, mm -hmm. like a fool, I gave the people a ball where they danced in a temperature, something under boiling water till past <laughs> three in the morning. End quote. As somebody who doesn't like to stay up too late at night. Me too. I actually get it. Because he's like, people leave my house. <laughs> you know, I get it. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to point out something very important. Mm -hmm. The one person who did not like having balls mm -hmm. at the government house mm -hmm. was the person who made the policies that made people mutiny in 1857. That's true. What does that tell you? You don't party, <laughs> then you make mutinies. <laughs> right. Please, guys, have social lives and please go out party. Yes. Do not yeah. do mutinies mm -hmm. uh, or do not create policies that will make people mutiny. Mm -hmm. um, not that we are in any sort of... Uh, in a seat of power to do that. No, um, nobody really cares what we're doing. <laughs> Except us. Except us, yes. Yes, yes. And so here we have this beautiful building 
um, that was added on to, renovated, lived in by many, 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 the great many governor generals right. of India lived right. there. The rulers of India. The rulers of India. Because right. um, as we said in our earlier podcast, they mm-hmm. built Delhi. Yes. New Delhi. Yes. But then they made it for India because, you know, they moved in and then they moved out. Right. Right. <laughs> so uh, essentially they made that capital really for Indians. Right. And not really for themselves. So this, the government house mm-hmm. in Calcutta mm-hmm. uh, was their actual original sort of uh, seat of power. Right, right. So, I mean, again, we've talked about government house, but again, you know, there's a lot of criticism that came about against the government house. And we will touch upon uh, some of the key ones which are, again, significant and reflective of the time of the changing colonial climate. And one of the things that the people, the British residents in in, in Calcutta had a problem with was the irregularity, right? Because oh, it was yeah. only open from December to March. March, yeah, right. right, which is literally three months. So nine months out of the year, where do the British residents go? Where can they have their social gatherings? Where it's just them, you know, oh. where they can recreate the British atmosphere and, you know, have parties and feel like they're not this far away from home, right. right? So Lord Minto is somebody who came under severe criticism because he was not somebody who liked to throw parties, like we discussed. And a newspaper account of the time, you know, because he held such little parties, they said about Minto that, and I quote, his lordship's departure from Calcutta had no effect upon the gaiety of Calcutta, for he disliked it too much to add to the agreement of society. There was a mutual cordiality of indifferences which rendered separation rather than a relief otherwise, end quote. So this again shows that the British residents wanted something more regularly done. And it wasn't going to be the government house because every with every governor general coming in, it changed. Whatever the governor general wanted happened. Mm-hmm. So that is one criticism. So one of the other criticisms is that it does not display British pride in its most revered form. They feel like Government House is not doing enough, right? It's it's hmm. it's not upholding Britishness and it's in its very... What more do they want? I don't know. I mean, you know, so there is a complaint. Miss Emma Roberts, who, who wrote contemporary accounts of the time, talked about, you know, there is nothing like a drawing room held at this court, no Lord Chamberlain or nobleman in waiting or any functionaries corresponding with these personages except aide-de-camp who are seldom very efficient, being more intent <laughs> upon amusing themselves than anxious to do the honors of the company. There were complaints about, you know, the silver, cu- the cutlery that was put oh, out. Oh, yes, yeah, no. So um, I read a bit which said, like, you know, the, the china that was used, it had to be brought in by the governor general from uh, with them, mm-hmm. with the family, because they had nothing in the government house. So there were like 12 Caesar statues. Right. But there were no plates and cups Right, and there glasses. weren't yes. enough plates and cutlery and, you yeah. know, glassware. Yeah. Or, or, or and that kind of speaks one. to the temporary nature. Exactly. Um, of, of the residents. Right, right. Um, but one of the biggest criticisms that comes up against government house and any events that they have there is that natives get invited. And obviously this ah. is, yes, so this is this is a criticism that comes up, which is obviously after 1856 when the empire becomes more about race, right? Mm-hmm. It's about us and them. So it's one of those where, you know, Dalhousie again sees himself as a representative of the sovereign, 
Uh, you have Auckland, who also says, no, you know, there are native noblemen who mm -hmm. have earned the right to come. And you have British residents, on the other hand, who are saying, why are the Indians here? Yeah. Why are they being invited? Why are we being invited and asked to sit next to each other on an equal footing? Right. right? So you see how the change of tenor right. of colonial yeah. rule yeah. is reflected in the practices mm -hmm. of the government house. Yeah. Um, we want to sort of conclude yes. here uh, with this sort of change in the way the British themselves were thinking about government house and what it meant what government house meant to the british mm -hmm. um and you see like a parallel change in the way the renovations happen the mm -hmm. way the spaces are used the way the spaces are experienced mm -hmm. uh but at the end of all this um Kirsten kind of puts it um rightly about why this building was important mm -hmm. to the british mm -hmm. and he says i quote i felt and this is when he's uh, he's writing in a, this book, mm -hmm. the two volumes that Manami mentioned earlier about uh, Government House. Mm -hmm. And he says, the reason he's writing it is because, quote, I felt that a loving memory required this attention and that the heart and center of the Calcutta of our forefathers ought to be made a worthy antechamber to the sacred associations of the neighboring fort and the newly recovered and demarcated site of the black hole. So, end quote. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, basically, the site becomes not just the residence of gov government generally, mm -hmm. but it's a monument, a mm -hmm. marker of British history in India. Mm -hmm. It's also a site of nostalgia. In Lord Curson's case, it's it's also the childhood, site. Childhood. Right, yeah, memory, mem right. memories of his childhood. And so... Not to mention power. Legitimacy. Course, yeah, right. Power and legitimacy. Right. And so while the way they interact with the site and the way the government house's meanings or the interactions change with over time, mm -hmm. it still remains the central you know, focus and yes. the central force yes. of the British Empire yes. for over a hundred years. Yes. So that's uh, all we have about the government house. If you want the readings that we read, uh, if you want uh, further inferences or further um, references, references um, head over to our site at www.masalahistory.com. Um, if you like this podcast, then please, please uh, leave us a comment anywhere. We are on Twitter as at Masala History. We are on Instagram as Masala underscore History. And we have a Facebook page. Uh, these are all linked on our website. So please leave us a comment on any one of these uh, sites. You can also subscribe to our RSS feed so that you don't miss any of our episodes that come out mm, roughly about every two weeks. Um, and so um, do share your uh, thoughts with us on if you like this episode or not. And if you are interested in listening about Calcutta history or about imperial history, drop us a line. Um, and you can also email us at contact at contactmasalahistory at gmail.com. So this is us signing off for now. See you in a couple of weeks. Okay, bye.